Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. And today we are talking about menstruation and the way that the law and the scriptures talk about it. And so we just want to say from the start, if you're one of our male listeners, you are welcome here. Mm -hmm. Um, The young Jewish men would have been studying this as young as, you know, under 12 years old. And so we know that this is designed for both women and men to read these passages. And so we just want to say, come along for the ride. Uh, This is an episode that is not exclusive to women, but we do hope it ministers to both women and men. And, um, And this is just something that we don't often talk about. And so we are excited to discuss today the ways in which scripture talks about menstruation and um and the ways that we see god more clearly through it so let's dig in all right heather so one of the ways that you and i have bonded over the years is from a shared love of leviticus and (laughs) we have tried hard to get other people on board and um, seeing the beauty of this book. So mm-hmm. it's a book though, that not many people have spent a lot of time with. And so if people are in that place where they haven't really spent a lot of time with Leviticus, um, let's just talk a little bit about why we love it and mm-hmm. how we engage it. Yeah. And honestly, if you're not even sure where in the Bible it is, it's the third book of the Bible. No shame. <laughs> if you're like, I can not tell you where it's located. <laughs> um, and it's part of what we call the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five. So the first five books of the Bible um, that, also, that in Hebrew was called the Torah or the law. So the first five books are kind of the foundation for the people of Israel and the whole community of faith. But it's a foundation of our story as humanity in our relationship with God and God calling his people and calling them into relationship with him. So Leviticus is right in the middle of that. And it's very much centered on the law. The law is very concentrated in this book. Yeah, that's a great point. So I think one of the things that I love about the law is the way that it encompasses every area of life. And so that's something for me that I love that is a huge part of our faith and that God is inviting his people to see the ways in which uh, their holiness and their engagement of obedience impacts every area of their life, the way they eat, the way they, um, who they sleep with, who, um, the way that they dress and just all these different pieces. Um, I love that it's an invitation to see every aspect of our lives as a place of worship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just fun anecdote about the law. If you've ever wondered, does God care about everything? He does indeed. (laughs) If you read Leviticus, (laughs) you'll see that very clearly. Uh, And obviously today we're talking about bodily functions, but the law covers everything. We had a student in the past who was studying safety science, which is essentially how to keep factories and places of work safe. And there are laws in Leviticus about putting a railing around the top of your house so somebody doesn't fall off. (laughs) So it's really relevant to every area of life. Many different professions can all be reflected in the book of Leviticus. 
And there are many just very practical laws. Like I said, there's some about safety and about uh, just keeping people safe and valuing human life. There are many laws about ceremonial practice and how to worship God in the temple for how to offer uh, animal sacrifices and blood sacrifices to God. There's laws about our a moral code about um, murder and lying and adultery and sexual morality. So there's laws about the human heart and about human sin. And then there's laws that we call ceremonial laws that are about ordering society that are not necessarily related to sinful behavior, but are about bringing order and goodness into their society. And so some laws make very obvious practical sense. Some may feel a little bit random. Like there's one about not mixing fabrics, <laughs> like not weaving together cotton and wool, um, for example. And that may seem kind of random. Like, why is that in there? And so I think especially laws that may feel not as obviously practical. I think a lot of what God is trying to do in the book of Leviticus is to show the people what it looks like to live a life that's set apart because God is a God unlike any other. And he wants his people to understand that he is not a God who resembles the gods of the nations. He is the one true living God who is Lord over all things. And so to worship God, our worship has to be set apart as well. If God is like no other, then our worship and our lives have to be like no other people. And so if you may be confused at times, you're like, why is God telling him to do that? It may not necessarily be for like some super practical reason. It may just be so that their days and their rhythms are oriented around remembering Yahweh is a God who is distinct. And because we follow him, we are a people who are distinct. God is set apart from all others. And for us to worship him means that we are set apart. And so a lot of what we'll see is God's holiness reinforced throughout Leviticus, that he is a God who can't be in the presence of unrighteousness, who can't be in the presence of impurity. And God desires for his people to be with him. He desires for his people to dwell with him in the land. Uh, and so a lot of Leviticus is helping the people dwell with a righteous God in their midst. That is so good. And I think it's, we're, clearly going and if you're not very familiar with scripture you may not realize this we're really going in chronological order here and so even this points back to some of the ways in which in exodus as they're coming out of bondage god is saying i want you to live differently and i want a set apart people and so he's really pointing to not just his own character but the ways in which he wants his people to resemble him and to be like you were saying a people like no other to worship a God who is unlike any other God. Um, and I think also it goes back to those covenants that he made with the patriarchs and the matriarchs that we talked mm -hmm. about. And so if he is going to illustrate that the people who come from Abraham are a blessed people, this is part of what it looks like for them to live in that way, for them to show how um, God blesses the lineage of Abraham. And so all these things come um, back to really a relational God who is building upon generations and then picking it up here and saying, I'm going to give you some really clear 
pictures of what it means for you to be that set apart people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So (laughs) we are going to be talking about Leviticus chapter 15 and the whole chapter is about bodily discharges. (laughs) So welcome. (laughs) Let's dive in. Um, So it's again, it's very earthy. And this, I think to me is also God affirming that humans are physical and he desires for us to live in a physical body. He created us to be human and to live in the earth and to live a physical life. We are not just metaphysical. We're not just spiritual. God knows that we live in a body on the earth and he wants to equip us to handle that. And so part of that is sometimes our bodies do weird things. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes they do normal things um, that we can anticipate and understand. And so I think this chapter, first of all, is God giving humans very just real practical and I think compassionate guidance for how to handle our bodies and how to understand Mm -hmm. ourselves and keep ourselves clean and sanitary and how to have healthy relationships with other people. And so the chapter starts talking about male discharges. And then it's going to talk about female discharges, which we will read also. But one thing to note from the top is that for men, it's talking about ejaculation. It's talking about semen. We're using some adult, but normal words here today. We are using the real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so God is talking about how do men handle that and how do men keep themselves clean and how should they understand their bodies? And so first of all, when we're going to read about women, we may feel like God is being really harsh towards the female body and towards the female reproductive system, but it can be beneficial. We're not going to read it aloud today, but I would encourage y'all to read it when you get a chance, the guidelines for men to handle their own physicality, because they have to do some fairly similar things to women. There is a period of cleansing. There's a period of, um, they're not allowed to come in contact with other people. If they are experiencing uncleanness, then they can pass that on to others. If others come in contact with them, they also have to offer sacrifices of atonement, uh, after their purification. So we want to know this isn't a burden that's only placed on women, that men are also being held to a high standard of understanding their bodies and keeping themselves pure. And part of what we want to highlight from the beginning as well is that this chapter is talking about male and female sexuality and about our reproductive systems. And I think part of what God is doing, I don't think that he is saying, Ooh, you're gross. (laughs) And like Uh sex is gross. Sexuality is gross. You need to clean that up. I think God is saying your sexuality is important. It has power. It has significance. It has sacredness and you need to treat it with care and with respect. Um, And that to keep your sexuality in a place of purity is really important. Um, We don't just mean like don't have sex and that means purity, (laughs) but we mean like cleanliness and respect and regard. Uh, That's that's Mm -hmm. what I mean when I say purity. Um, So (laughs) God is, I think, partly talking to both men and women to say your reproductive organs are important. They are holy. There is something important and sacred about them. 
and you need to treat them with a dignity that reflects that. Yeah, I think that's so important because our our current American understanding of the faith is often extremely disembodied. And so we and we worship according to our own preferences and that's not necessarily bad, but it can be really confusing when you're reading Leviticus and it's all about like there God has ways in which he prefers to be worshiped and um and we're so used to like that music was too loud for me over there <laughs> and the preaching was really long over here and whatever um that I think it's important for us to remember this is a God who cares about how God is worshiped and he cares about the very bodies of the people who are worshiping him. And so the fact that we are experiencing this to me is such a beautiful picture of the Lord who knows and has eventually chosen a, to take on a body in Jesus. And so I think there's so much dignity of the fact that even, you know, probably our listeners are like semen why are you saying that on a podcast that's so uncomfortable um it like we're not used to having these conversations and yet god is god Mm -hmm. is very comfortable saying here's like what to do when you're bleeding and after you've had intercourse and like all these kinds of things and so um i think there's ways in which to me, this is very comforting that God is not shying away from a conversation about things that we still do shy away from. I mean, we're so like, in some ways, we've come a long way in the ways in which our culture, I think not always in a helpful way, engages in sexuality. And yet still, you would never actually talk to someone about like, Mm -hmm. and what do you do during (laughs) this period of uncleanliness? Like, um, And so I think there's so many ways in which this is uh, an invitation to draw near to God who loves our bodies and wants us to be able to care for them well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I, I hope that it's encouraging just how blunt God is being your Mm -hmm. point, Jamie, that he's just like, here's what it is. (laughs) Like you should, I know this is a thing. Let's just name it. (laughs) Uh, And here's some practical guidance for how to handle your personal hygiene and to understand your reproductive systems. So I appreciate exactly that God is not, he's not using euphemisms. He's not kind Mm -hmm. of just speaking indirectly. He's like, this is what it is. I, I see you, I'm willing to draw near to you. And I want to give you guidance so that you can draw near to me. Good. Okay. Well, one other thing I want to make sure we clarify before we read the passage about female menstruation is the passage uses the word unclean several times. And Leviticus talks about this a lot. And so we need to clarify that there are multiple forms of being unclean in the Mm -hmm. Jewish law. So you could be morally unclean and you could be ceremonially unclean. So to be morally unclean is to commit some kind of sins, like to to lie, to, to harm someone in violence, you know, et cetera. Um, to uh, something that we would continue to recognize today as this is a universal moral injustice. This is a wrong. 
to be ceremonially unclean was more in reference to their worship in the temple. Mm-hmm. So that didn't necessarily mean that you were in sin. If you were ceremonially unclean, it meant that you couldn't enter the temple until you had gone through purification rites. So I think we need to know that because I didn't always know that. And when I used to read this passage, I would think that somehow God feels like women are sinning when we have our period. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make any sense because God created us this way and he created our reproductive systems and he created us to be in his image. And so I want us to know from the beginning, God is not saying you're in sin when you're on your period. It's referring to a specific ceremonial practice, not a moral or ethical one. So good. Um, all right, well, let's read it. Okay, so we are gonna be in Leviticus 15. I'm gonna be reading verses 19 through 30. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she, she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, and she, sh- she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's, that would be the tabernacle, the place of worship. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Okay, so let's just name, that sounds kind of rough <laughs> when you just read it all. It's like, what? That, what? That sounds really harsh. So- unclean so many times yes and if y'all picked up on it what's happening is if anything that a woman sits on or like her bed or anything that she would a chair or any part of her that would come in contact with her during her menstrual period would become unclean and therefore anyone else that comes in contact with those objects would be unclean as well so it feels like through our modern lens it feels like this sense of contamination almost. I mean, especially as we are still living through a global pandemic, we're so, um, I think, hyper aware of how something is transmitted, how disease is transmitted. And this feels kind of similar to that. Mm -hmm. And so I 
very much think, certainly I read it this way for many years. It just feels like, oh, women are gross and periods are gross and you're contaminated when you're on your period. It totally feels like that when you start to read it. And especially, I'm so glad you brought up that point about um, what do we actually mean by unclean? Because I think, gosh, you listen to that. And without knowing that you just kind of feel like dirty. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to just name that and say, I actually don't think that's God in, God's intention, um, that we would read it and have that feeling at the end. Actually, verse 31, he is again, kind of summarizing mm -hmm. the whole piece of both the women and men. Um, mm -hmm. and it says, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die from their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And so it's kind of that exclamation point on what you were sharing. Like God is so holy that he needs to kind of put this uh, clarity between God and people of I'm so holy that I actually cannot be, um, in unrighteousness. And so out of compassion for the people that I love, I want to have some clear um, language around what it looks like to be distinct in that nature. Um, and even, I mean, it sounds kind of weird to be like, whatever you sit on until <laughs> you start to read the rest of Leviticus and you see how much really like articles base, like what you put the water in is mm -hmm set apart for worship. Um, mm -hmm. and so when you read that full picture of the ways in which articles, um, like the things that are mentioned are used in worship, um, I think it, it begins to fill out the picture a little bit of like, this is the ways in which God is saying some things are set apart for worship. Um, the fancy word for that is consecration. And mm -hmm. so things that have been set apart for a holy purpose, um, are then different. They are distinct. And so I think the more you start to see the ways in which even, you know, the incense that is burned in the mm -hmm. worship is set apart and distinct, and you wouldn't really use that same incense in other places, the more you start to see these, the ways of like the very articles that people are coming into contact with it it kind of fills out that picture a little bit I think mm -hmm. definitely yeah and I do think it's important that coming in contact with many different things can make someone unclean it's not just around sexuality so if you mm -hmm. come into contact with a dead body um, or yeah. a dead carcass then you're you're unclean and need to wash yourself and so for sure some of it is spiritual and it is about being consecrated and set apart some of it is also practical to limit the spread of disease or infection mm -hmm. you know we're in the ancient near east at this point obviously they don't have uh, constant access to running water they don't have access mm -hmm. to modern medicine and so some of it is also god helping them understand hygiene and how to maintain literal cleanliness so that their homes and their society are as safe as possible. I honestly love that part of the law. To me, it shows God's 
character and kindness and wisdom of like, you haven't discovered this yet. Later, Mm -hmm. you will have the science that backs some of this up. And so there are things like you talked about of, um, you know, clothing and whatnot that are kind of just for clear set apart purposes. And there's other things that we now know the science behind. So there's ways in which God explains how they are supposed to poop, like Mm -hmm. poop outside (laughs) of the camp, because otherwise your water will get contaminated. And I love that that is a part of things that we know now all the science and like sanitation science behind that. Um, but I don't think they knew all the pieces that were going into that at the time. I think it was like, okay, we are going to be obedient. And that if they were obedient, their water was clean. Like it's part Mm -hmm. of when we are listening to the kindness of God, it leads us into human flourishing. That's God's intention. And I think there's really practical things about, uh, like you were saying, of just, you know, infection. Like we don't know what they would have, um, are like ancient practices may have been in order to try and make themselves clean. And I think, mm-hmm. um, there's ways in which the more I see the ways that God explains things to them and says, actually like go to the bathroom outside of the camp and, um, make sure that you, you know, are clean in this way. To me, I start to see the compassion of the Lord in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And God making them a more advanced society in a way, more than perhaps some of their neighbors would have been because he's giving them these divine insights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we have some, uh, I think insight about God wanting men and women to have a high regard for their reproductive systems and to understand that there is something special and worthy of additional care and -hmm. dignity. Um, we have some practical sanitation guidance in there. And then uh, there's another component that we want y'all to consider, um, again, this is both for men and women, but I think especially for women, when we feel a lot of shame and just, uh, I think a, a desire to isolate or withdraw when we're on our period, we feel anxious. We don't want anybody to see blood. You know, every feminine hygiene, every feminine products commercial is about discretion. Like mm-hmm. you can just be so discreet and no one will even know, etc. cetera. Uh, and so I want us to reevaluate our understanding of blood itself and of menstrual blood and what it represents to God and how it can give us, I think, an additional meaning and understanding of our own bodies. So blood in general in the Old Testament is sacred. And I'm going to read a couple of verses specifically from just a couple chapters later in Leviticus 17. God's talking about offering blood sacrifices to him. And God has a very specific and what would have been unique to Israel, a very specific command not to consume animal blood. So, you know, it's a practice in many cultures, uh, including Western cultures to make, to turn blood into some form of food, um, you know, to make blood sausage or to repurpose it. Uh, But God has a very specific command about that. So I'm going to read two verses. I'm going to read verse 11 and 14. 
He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. And then in verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And I think what God is communicating through this is that blood is the life force of every living thing, every, you know, creature. And it's a representation that God is the giver of life, that God alone is the creator. God alone calls certainly humans into existence and God alone has called the cosmos into existence. And so therefore the only worthy sacrifice to God is blood because it's a representation of you, the Lord are the originator of this life. And so we offer it back to you as a sacrifice to you. And God is saying, I alone, because I alone create, I alone can receive this sacrifice of blood. And I think that God is actually saying it is, it's idolatry. It would be humans standing in the place of God. If we were to consume the blood of an animal that we would be saying we are worthy of receiving this blood that we are, we have power and we have authorship over creatures, over animals. And God is trying to, I think, put humans in a rightly ordered understanding of ourselves and of God and of the creation by saying only God is worthy of blood because only God is our creator. Does that make sense? Do you have any comments about that, Jamie? No, I love that idea of um, this not being disconnected from that idea. I think that's Mm -hmm. really lovely to consider. Yeah. And so I would encourage us as women to think about if blood is sacred, the life of every creature is its blood. It's the representation of God breathing life into the creation. How much more is menstrual blood uh, an expression of God's sacred calling and God's sacred image within us, that it is a reflection of our ability to create life that's been given to us by God. And so rather than seeing blood as something shameful that separates us from the community, I think that we should view it as something sacred that's happening within us, that's reminding us that we are made in God's image, that we are like him in our ability to bring forth life and that we honor him with humility, understanding this alone comes from God. We don't put ourselves in the place of God, but we understand that he's given us a gift within our physical bodies. And that we are, when we're on our period, we are reminded that this is blood that can bring forth life and it is sacred to the Lord. I love that. I think, um, there's such a reframing in that of the ways in which, and like a celebration. I think we've mentioned many times that we don't have children, but I think somehow, and both of us have considered like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we had like celebrations when young women uh, had their first periods that it wasn't like, oh gosh, now let me teach you how to use period products that it was (laughs) actually some sort of celebration instead and I think um I think there's so much power in that of like 
this isn't something that makes you dirty or, you know, I just think there's so much shame that comes with it. Like you were even saying about like you hand someone like a tampon across the table and it's like under the table <laughs> hidden in your sleeve. Like <laughs> We whisper so, to each other. Yes. Like, Do you have to laugh? Exactly. And even when I don't, maybe some of y'all grew up in families where it was very open and it was just, you know, a celebration. Um, for me, when I got my first period, it was this like hidden thing in whispers where my mom was like, Oh, this is okay. This is what you need to do. You know? And like, even when you put your products in the trash, you like are trying to hide it in the trash so that it's not visible to anyone else. There is just so much uh, secrecy. And again, like, I think that's driven by shame. It's not even mm-hmm. just about discretion per se. I think it's like, I don't want anyone to know this is creepy. This is gross. Mm-hmm. It will gross people out. We assume it grosses men out because it often does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, again, it's still, it is still a very private thing. That's okay for it to remain private. Uh, but I don't think that it's helpful for us to see it in through such a lens of shame and of disgust. Mm-hmm. And I would argue based on our conversations about Eve, our first two episodes of Reconstructing Eve, that I would say the enemy is the one who's behind mm-hmm. our perception of menstruation as being shameful and being disgusting. Because I don't think God sees it that way. I right. think God sees it as this is a, a reality of your human life. I'm going to give you guidance into it. And that God is seeing it as something that is sacred within us that's mirroring our image bearing. And of course, Satan would want to dismantle that and try to mar that with a sense of shame or embarrassment and a sense Mm -hmm. of resentment. I mean, how often do we as women talk about our periods with resentment and anger Mm -hmm. that we're like, I can't believe this. I'm on my period. I hate this, blah, blah, blah. We'll like commiserate with each other of, oh, that's so awful. I'm so sorry that you got your period today, et cetera. Like we commiserate with each other based on these feelings of resentment and frustration and inconvenience. And Mm -hmm. we see it almost purely negatively with each other. Right. I think as we've reframed that, I think I want to draw out the difference between like shame and privacy. Yeah. Because I think I actually think some of what God's doing here is giving women privacy. Um, and I think what, if we don't see it as, um, shameful, I think there's a lot of compassion and kindness and really the tenderness of the Lord in creating privacy in the midst Mm -hmm. of this. And I think, um, there's other places in which this same, um, kind of, ceremonial law is discussed. Um, and it uses language of uncovering a woman. Mm. And I remember one time it was when I saw that language that I was like, God is doing us a favor. This Mm -hmm. is not, um, like punishment. It is a gift. And, um, and I think this is a point where it really draws upon the reality of centuries of men really being the ones 
to do the interpreting of scripture and your social location affects the ways in which you view the world. And so as I was reading these passages again and again, the more it started to become clear to me, like, wait, what if someone else is the one who told me that this is about being dirty or something? And it, it really was kind of a, who told you that? Like echoing the voice mm-hmm. of the Lord in the garden. And, um, and I started to see like, you know, we have, I, there are days where I'm like, I wish I didn't have to go to work. And (laughs) I, um, I think I see the kindness of the Lord in this of saying, actually, like, you don't get to use a woman for your own pleasure, like in Mm -hmm. a time where she may not receive pleasure from it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I think this verse in Ezekiel kind of supports that because um, it's talking about this moment of God reminding the Israelites of how unholy they had become. And so there's this whole kind of line that line upon line that he's going through of like, here's some ways in which you are being oppressive. Here are some ways in which you are being unrighteous. And one of the illustrations of that in Ezekiel 22 verse 10 is that you violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. And I think that language of violating brings so much more agency to women. And Mm -hmm. I think really the more that I also have kind of allowed my heart to link with women and girls in developing nations, the more that kind of reality becomes clear because we see this again through our eyes of having a lot of products to navigate our periods. And when I started to think about and learn like, oh, young girls who are starting to go to school, skip school because they don't have period products. And the more I started to kind of link my heart to those developing nations and the ways in which girls and women are impacted by that, the more I did start to see the compassion of the Lord in the midst of this. Um, It's actually violating a woman for you to like want to use her for your own gain or experience. And I kind of think he's just like, give the women a break. Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it obviously is about like, I mean, the articles, like you see that level of like purity, but I, I really see this as, you know, women, having agency and women having, um, their own bodies, like return to them in that moment of Mm. potentially like pain and, um, and allowing them to have privacy. And so when you don't see that as like a shameful thing, but being able to say, I'm not really sure how in the ancient Near East women experienced that bleeding. My guess is that it was very visible. And so, um, to allow women to experience that privately and like, honestly, there was a very communal life. So I have to imagine there were a lot of women kind of experiencing this together, like Mm -hmm. are their cycles syncing up to like some alpha female in the group and kind of, you know, having moments together around like, well, we're all, out here, we got to sit on this bench today and kind of having this moment. And obviously that's extra biblical, but I, 
I think it's it's worth allowing ourselves to imagine what that experience was like for women in that time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. I do think that's such a good point that we will assume, oh, don't touch women. They're gross. You'll get contaminated. And maybe the Lord is like, don't touch women. Maybe they don't want you to mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. <laughs> and maybe they are going through it. Not everyone, not every month, but yeah, there's plenty of months where it's like, no, I'd rather, I need, I need some space. <laughs> And that that can, like you said, that can be a mercy of the Lord and a ministry of the Lord to allow women to be on their own and not have to be available to everyone else in the same way when we're on our periods. I think that can, can really offer us rest mm-hmm. and offer us uh, just an opportunity to be still. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that, um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to shift us to uh, a passage in the gospels. Did you have anything else, Jamie, before I No, I was actually just about to say, I think that kind of shifts us there nicely. Okay. So this is a passage in Luke. It, it appears in, I know for sure, Mark as well, um, about the woman with the flow of blood that may be somewhat familiar for some of you. I think it's, to me, I think people have been reading it more in recent years. Maybe that's just my own circles, but it seems like it's been getting a little bit more publicity, which it deserves. Um, but this is one thing off the top that to me is funny. So, you know, I grew up in the church and I did not know until well into my twenties, maybe late twenties, that <laughs> the woman with the flow of blood, that it meant menstruation. I assumed I think as a child and then never re-examined it, that she just had some kind of like open wound that was unhealed. <laughs> Cause what's, how is a kid supposed to know what a flow of right. blood means? <laughs> and like that she went to a bunch of doctors for it. So I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. She must have some kind of like blood clotting problem or something. And so I even think the translation that we use of saying flow of blood is so confusing (laughs) and obtuse. And I'm just like, I don't know what that means. I think we should just say the woman with, uh, continual menstruation and let's just be more clear about what's happening there. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And even still, like we don't talk about women's health issues. And so I think a lot of people don't know, like this is an issue that women even now in the States would be, um, experiencing because we there's so much shame attached to it and so when you aren't even aware that someone could be menstruating for years on end um I think because that's become you know not a topic of conversation that of course we're unaware of that but I think of reading those passages in Leviticus brings such clarity to kind of the woman's posture in this story Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So even if this may be more familiar, chances are the Leviticus passage may not have been for many of us. So we want to read this Luke passage again, because I think when it's more deeply contextualized in the realities of the Jewish law and what her life would have been, then it, I think it really amplifies how Christ engages with her and how he interacts with, interacts with her. 
Um, so I'm gonna, the story is embedded in a longer story, uh, but I'll just, I'm gonna uh, read the somewhat shorter version. So I'm in Luke eight and I'll be reading 43 through 48. And Jesus went and people around, people pressed around him. And there was a woman who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and, you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So a few things that we want to draw out from this. I'm already like so moved. I know. <laughs> like, emotions. Such a beautiful story. Yes. Emotions are already rising as I'm just reading about Jesus. But first of all, as we read in Leviticus, so if she is experiencing extended menstruation, that means she's living a life of isolation. Mm -hmm. That means any, anywhere she sits, any bed that she sleeps on, anything that she touches, any person that she touches will become unclean. And so for, for years, for 12 years, she has been living this life of having to be on her own. And this is what's also so terrifying for her and also inspiring is that by her going into a crowd, she is making everyone she comes into contact with unclean. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge risk that she's taking just to approach Christ. If people found out, they would be furious with her. All anyone who had come into contact with her in the crowd would have to wash their clothes and they'd be unclean until the evening as we read. And Jesus would yes. be made unclean by her touch. And so I think what's so striking is that when he, she's trying to be sneaky, you know, she's trying to fly under the radar. She's trying to stay hidden. And when Jesus turns around and says, someone touched me, I think in that moment, probably what she's expecting is public shame, mm -hmm. that he's going to publicly shame her in front of the crowd. And then everyone in the crowd is going to be furious with her and she's going to be even more alienated than she already was. And instead of being publicly shamed, she's publicly restored. And yeah, this is so beautiful and so emotional, but Jesus is not freaked out. He's not angry. And that I think is also a testament to the fear with which we can approach Jesus with our struggles in our lives, with our brokenness, with our sin, that we think we're going to contaminate him. And instead he's the one who makes us clean. He can't be contaminated by us, uh, but his desire is to make us whole. And so he also then publicly restores her that rather than them having this one-on-one -on -one conversation where she knows that she's healed and she can go back to a normal life. Now the whole community knows that she's healed and she can be returned and restored to living in community with others. And I think that's so emblematic of who Jesus is that anytime we encounter Christ, it brings us into community with his people that very rarely is, if ever, would someone be then on their own 
after they've talked to Jesus. It's nearly always uh, encountering him is to be, is to come out of hiding, yes. is to be made whole and to be brought into restored relationship. And I think we get such a clearer picture of the before and after for her when we have read the Leviticus passage and we see the incredible compassion and love and acceptance of Jesus. He's not grossed out. He's not freaked out. He just immediately wants to care for her and wants her to be seen and wants her to be healed. I love that so much. And the fact that he, where other religious leaders of the day would have been themselves made unclean and therefore probably, um, you know, not super pleased with that. I think that makes his, the way in which he addresses her all the more powerful because not only is Jesus the one who, um, makes her clean rather than himself becoming unclean, but he addresses her as daughter in response. Mm. And it's so powerful to think about like this woman who has been, um, trying to be hidden for so long, um, being restored in that way of being called daughter by Jesus. And I think, um, yeah, it's just incredible to me, the ways in which, um, it says very clearly, like that she fell down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him. That is so courageous of this woman. Like we kind of get this picture of her, you know, kind of crouching in the crowd, like crawling to him. And we don't, she's clearly desperate as well. Like she's sought out every answer. Um, but I think the fact that she has the courage to say in front of everyone who would know the implications of what she's saying, I had to touch you because I knew that you are the only one who could make me well. And she puts herself at such a risk doing that. And so the fact that she is courageous enough to come to him, um, at all, but then to also say, this is why I touched you, um, puts herself just really in a vulnerable place. And so the ways in which Jesus meets her in response is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And her story teaches us so much about what it means to come out of hiding and the risk that it takes, that the risk that we have to take when we take that step towards Jesus, because we can often be in bondage, in isolation, in secrecy, in shame. And to come into the light is to take a risk of not totally knowing what's going to happen. She doesn't know how he's going to respond. She tells him the truth before he calls her daughter. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that is so courageous and is, I do think what God calls us into, God calls us into a life of risk and uncertainty and trusting that he'll meet us in that place of vulnerability and openness and standing in the light that he will be there with us. And so just her story by itself is so powerful, but I think the example that she shows us of being willing to take that first step into the light, and we may not know what's going to happen and we may come trembling and yet Jesus will restore us and Jesus Mm -hmm. will call us daughter or son. That's such a lovely reminder. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an invitation. And I think that's the point of scripture and 
I hope people hear even in that passage of Leviticus that can so easily be taken kind of out of context and just like God's kind of weird. Why does he care about this stuff? But it's such an invitation to God's character and heart for us to draw near to him. And that's what scripture does. And I think um, I am a woman who has experienced an issue of blood and has um, there's one in 10 women. Um, it takes them almost exactly this time period, it says, to get diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, the average woman, it takes about a decade to get a diagnosis. And so, um, wow. and there's actually so many um, reproductive issues, I think. So I hope women who are listening to this for whom um, periods have been a really painful thing, find themselves in this story as like Jesus meets us in that moment. And I think there's an exhaustion that comes with that. And I think, um, honestly, I was thinking before we recorded about how there's kind of like a secret, like sisterhood, like, uh, mm -hmm. I feel like, um, there's so many women that I have been connected to who end up, I find out that they also have endometriosis or, um, polycystic ovarian syndrome or something of the like. And, um, it's almost like this, like you come to like lock eyes or something. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to that in the story, even of like, Jesus is the one who locks eyes with her. And he's like, I know what you've been through. Like, I know, even it says, I wonder if she, when she says like her story that she declares in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him. I wonder if she's the one to say how long she'd been going to doctors mm -hmm. or if that's known in the community or if that's just like Jesus knew that um and I think there's something really significant about the reality of Jesus inviting us to come close to him in the midst of our exhaustion from pain in the midst of uh perceived shame and experienced um being misunderstood there's so many ways in which women who actually are experiencing an issue of blood are still they still go to doctors for years and are misunderstood. And I think what I personally have found in this story is, um, is the God who sees, like we talked about in a previous episode, the one who is near to us in those moments where we have been misunderstood and where we have been uh, really desperate for answers. And Jesus comes really near in those moments. And so um, I hope that people see an invitation however you see yourself in this story I think there's um ways in which we all have experienced pain and being misunderstood but I think um the ways that Jesus is just kind of reversing a narrative that um so many of us have experienced even just this simple aspect of shame that we were talking about that Jesus is so um, not ashamed to draw near to that. And so, um, in fact, he really welcomes, um, this woman in. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this is why it's so important to read the old and new Testament together, because when we read Leviticus, we understand the beauty of Christ's compassion and healing. And we understand from Jesus and Leviticus together that God is not ashamed of our bodies. 
that he's not ashamed of the way that he made us, uh, that he's not grossed out by us. And in fact, his whole plan and his whole desire is for us to be near him. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the, really the, the motivation behind the purification laws in Leviticus is because God wants us to be near him. And we see Jesus fulfilling that in a truly embodied way uh, that he is glad for her nearness and that because she's near her life can be transformed because of his love and his power. So I hope that we, yeah, I hope we read these stories. I hope that we engage this conversation and experience freedom from shame, that we experience more peace with our bodies, that we're willing to rejoice and celebrate the ways that we are made in the image of God, the ways that something sacred could actually be happening within us, even when it's not always functioning the way that we want it to, or the way it was designed to, that there is still sacredness within us. And there is still something that God has placed inside of us that he wants to be near. This really is so beautiful that God blesses and loves our bodies. He offers kindness to us in the midst of it. So thank you so much for digging in with us today. Subscribe to the podcast in your preferred app so that you get notifications when we drop new episodes each Wednesday. We also have a special offer for our listeners, courtesy of an amazing supporter. We want to offer a free book to help you dig deeper. So our social media handles are in the show notes of this episode. If you share about this podcast on your social media for the rest of Women's History Month, we'll send you the details about how to get your free book with our friends at Hearts and Minds books when you tag us. Sharing really helps others discover the podcast, and so does rating and reviewing in your podcast app. Thanks so much for being a part of the conversation and helping others uncover their place in God's story.